Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. It's been an exciting week. So much going on. President's overseas, so he can't give out any scintillating interviews domestically, but he can't be happy with the polls he left behind. Carly Shimkus will ride the news with us at the bottom of the hour. It'll be great. Uh, and, of course, we'll take your calls. Keep in mind, if you ever have to miss the show, BrianKilmeadeShow.com is how to get the podcast. So uh, we have a lot to discuss, including, you know, Hunter Biden sat down for seven hours to... Uh, in response to a defamation suit given to him by the computer repair shop owner, he countersued. You're not going to believe how he bends over backwards to say it's not his laptop while suing because his laptop, uh, uh, the contents of his laptop was let out. It's unbelievable. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's big three. Number three. I have a lot of regrets about, uh, about how it ended in Afghanistan. I have a regret with a basic decision, which I think was the wrong decision, and I have, a, and I particularly regret that we did not choose to begin to evacuate our people at the time we made the decision to bring out our combat forces. Well, but he didn't make the decision. This is the complicated thing. Mackenzie speaks. The general in charge of the Afghanistan exit goes on the record two years after the national catastrophe to make it clear he wishes he never left, especially the way we did. But why did he not say something at the time? Maybe it would not have happened. All sides weigh in. Number two. There's a state law that says every child, I've had three sons in public school, must be vaccinated from A to Z, or you don't step in the front door. Now all these illegal alien kids, close to 22,000, no vaccinations, no medical record. You busted the border, Joe, and now school, cities, and party officials are scurrying to deal with the mess you made. And guess what he's trying to do? A remain in Texas policy, preventing the illegals from leaving Texas. Really? That will not fly. Number one. Mr. Stan, we have brand new CNN polling this morning, and the numbers are rough for President Biden. Still early, but Biden's approval rating has sunk to 39 percent. Nearly 60 percent of voters think Biden's policies are making the economy worse. Right. Even though the nice music underneath the CNN broadcast, they can't be happy with the results. Okay. It's time to panic. Two-thirds of which, of Democrats, which don't want Joe to be their party's nominee, and now he's losing to almost every Republican candidate. We look at the game plan and the fallout since. So what am I talking about? So CNN puts out a poll, and I'm sure they didn't think they'd get these results. Keep in mind, it's only 1,200 registered voters. But here we go. Head-to-head, he loses to Pence, Senator Scott, Governor DeSantis, dead heat, uh, dead heat with Trump, Ramaswamy he's the only one he beats by one. Christie beats him by two. But Nikki Haley beats him by six. That's beyond the margin of error. That is why, believe me, they must have got this poll ahead of time or their internals must say the same thing. They're attacking Nikki Haley. I thought, what's that going on there? You're attacking Nikki Haley's education program on a Tuesday? And I know that President Trump says 
his camp was like, look out for Nikki Haley from here on in. Interesting, correct? So you look at those polls, and the fact that he's got 39% approval rating overall, it's scary. It is really scary if you're Joe Biden. And here's the question. Most Democratic voters wish they had an alternative to Biden. Yes, 67% of Democratic voters said they wish they had an alternative. Wow. Wow. Pretty bad. Among the people weighing in, maybe before it's too late, James Carville, cut three. I guess to say the least, the, 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 the polls are not, uh, were not great. And it tells us that, you know, voters are expressing uh, some apprehension here. It's, it's pretty clear. I mean, there's not much else you can say when you, you look at them. You, you can't look at this and not say that you're concerned. It's just for me to come on television and say, I don't find this alarming or troubling at all would be, would be stupid. I mean, I wouldn't do that. It is alarming. And the thing is, it is all, it's not, well, he doesn't have a, he doesn't give a great speech. It's not, well, some of the programs that he put together aren't as popular, but he thinks it's good for the country in the long run. No, you broke the border. You embarrassed us internationally. You never got Ukraine ready to fight a war. Now we're blitzing him with billions of dollars and it's losing sentiment for this war uh, with Russia, uh, with China, with Brazil. We back the wrong candidate in Brazil, which is basically going communist. Do you know? A couple of days ago, they celebrated their birthday in Brazil. Do you know nobody showed up to celebrate? It's like if we had a 4th of July celebration for America, which we do, the birth, our birthday, and no one ever came because that's how little pride they have. That's how crazy this communist is mentored by Fidel Castro, who Joe Biden backed. So under Joe Biden's international genius, we've lost Central and South America. Our border's been broken. Our deficit's been doubled. You want to talk about unemployment? People rather talk about inflation, sadly. Want to hear more fallout? Here, look at others weighing in about these results. Cut one. Mr. Stan, we have brand new CNN polling this morning, and the numbers are rough for President Biden. They could spell trouble for Democrats and the president's hopes for re-election in 2024. Still early, but Biden's approval rating has sunk to 39%. Nearly 60% of voters think Biden's policies are making the economy worse. Close to 70% of Democrats want somebody else to run for president. And the president's approval among Democratic voters? That's slipping. There is no way to spin this. CNN reads the country's mood right now and finds that America is deeply unhappy with Joe Biden. You don't blame Fox? You don't maybe... Uh, we're not getting the doing a good job getting the message out, how great the rescue plan is, how wonderful the Inflation Reduction Act is. Oh, so in c- case you want to panic, let's just shut off all drilling in Alaska that was passed with legitimate tax regu- uh, regulation and legislation by the previous administration. Really? The same day you cut off our own drilling, our own oil and gas, to the chagrin of people in Alaska – You hear that Saudi Arabia and Russia are cutting output. Meanwhile, we should all be expecting what California is already experiencing. They got $6 a gallon gas. We're coming up on four. Some of you are like $4.75, $5.25. So if you really want to affect people's pocketbook, don't do anything about inflation or raise people's rates like you're doing. And that affects everyone's credit card and your mortgage. And you don't sell your home. And you don't buy a home because you don't want to get a mortgage with rates that high when they were just down to 3% two years ago. And you do all that, but then you affect gas. That affects everything. So if you live paycheck to paycheck, everything hurts. 
Don't you think it's a little bit of a problem? I think so. Josh Crashauer weighed in. He's uh, with Axios, now with another publication, but a Fox News contributor cut for The big news, Shannon, is that Biden is tied or is losing to every Republican running in, in the field. Just and about. It's a, it's, a, it's a real worrisome sign if you're a Democrat. And look, Biden has a strong, uh, he's, he's pitching Bidenomics, he's trying to run on his economic record, but the American public isn't feeling it. And Almost uh, three-quarters of Americans are, are worried about his age, and that's the elephant in the room that's not going to be going away. If anything, it's going to be getting worse as we get closer to 2024. So if you're a Democratic governor, a Democratic mayor, and you're Eric Adams and you say things to the effect of, I'm a, I'm a Bidenite, I'm the Joe Biden of New York, right? it's kind of weird even to say. And now all of a sudden that Joe Biden has allowed so many illegal immigrants in this country, it's overwhelming our city streets or our hotels, our soccer fields in New York. That's why I say our. And now schools. Do you know that kids couldn't even get into the school, kids that belong into the school? The lines were so long in places like Long Island City, they couldn't get in. Some kids were quoted as saying, you know what, it's my high school year between that and the pandemic. I think I'm just going to try to either do this at home or I'm going to try to get into another high school. Think about this. You know how much you enjoy to remember your high school years? Can you imagine being so discouraged? You say, I'm just going to go to a private school. I'll find the money. I'm just going to go to a private school. Here's Curtis Sleewood, who ran against Mayor Adams, but a Republican in New York City. It's very tough to be successful, but he laid it out. Cut 13. There's a state law that says every child, I've had three sons in public school, must be vaccinated from A to Z, or you don't step in the front door. Now all these illegal alien kids, close to 22,000. No vaccinations, no medical record. We don't even know who they are. There's no paperwork. And yet they move to the head of the class. And you say, why are we forcing American children to the back of the class? You wanted them in Joe Biden, the Biden of Brooklyn. That was Eric Adams. Remember, he said, I'm the Biden of Brooklyn. Kathy Hochul, you say you're a sanctuary state, a sanctuary city. Well, take what you said you were going to do and do it or stop complaining. You don't need to be a sanctuary city because there's no law. There's no law that says that. When we come back, I want to talk about General McKenzie and Afghanistan. More on this and the fallout because it's just as horrific in Chicago. It is terrible in Los Angeles. It is overwhelming our border states still of California, excuse me, of California. They don't talk about it, but it's true. New Mexico is feeling like they never felt before. On our northern border, too, Arizona, Democratic governor, no remaining in Arizona. They're looking to pass a piece of legislation federally that will prevent the illegal aliens from going into the inner part of America, staying in the border cities in Texas. That cannot stand. Governor Abbott will fight back. But it's been a fight every step of the way to get this president's attention, to get his, get his administration to do anything. But this could turn the election. This is the Roe v. Wade that happened in 2022. Republicans were caught flat-footed, unable to talk about their pro-life message. Well, now Democrats don't even can't even approach how to discuss a logical way out of the mess they created. You're listening to the Brian Kilmeade Show. One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Don't move. 
politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I have a lot of regrets about uh, about how it ended in Afghanistan. I have a regret with a basic decision, which I think was the wrong decision. And I have a, and I particularly regret that we did not choose to begin to evacuate our people, our, our embassy personnel, our American citizens, and our at-risk Afghans at the time we made the decision to bring out our combat forces. I think that was a serious mistake, and I think that led to the events of August 2021 directly. So General Frank McKenzie speaking to Jennifer Griffin at length for the first time that I can remember since his testimony. And, you know, he was the one who got the call. Al Bardar called him. He was the leader of the Taliban at the time that we were dealing with in the Doha agreement with the Trump team and elsewhere with Kyle Azad, who we could probably get on, by the way. Uh, So Frank McKenzie saying, listen, I recommended we keep troops here, which is unbelievable because President Trump, excuse me, President Biden said no one ever recommended or told me that something like this could happen. General McKenzie and General Milley reportedly papered this whole thing, which means they wrote it down in real time what their recommendation was. And there was there, keep 2,200 in country and also keep you have the NATO troops. uh, They had about 8,000 there. They weren't even informed that we were pulling out. So he sat down. And I appreciate him apologizing, you know, saying I feel bad and I have regrets. But what did you do about it? I mean, could you're a general. I know you're supposed to take orders from civilian command. But for me, I simply say this, Mr. President, what you're doing now will be the greatest disaster in American military history. And I'm the general in charge. You are not taking my advice. So therefore, what Mattis said, you owe a secretary of defense, he said, and I just paraphrase that you will listen to and respect. You obviously don't respect me because I told you, President Trump, to leave troops in Syria and don't abandon the Kurds. And you're not listening to me, so I quit. So President uh, Trump said, yeah, no, no, you're fired. Okay. So he got rid of him. Well, if I'm McKenzie, I just say I quit. And if I'm Millie, I say I quit. And here's why. But I want you to hear more. I'm going to let you hear more from him. Cut 16. Did you have intelligence that the suicide bomber or members of ISIS-K were gathering in a hotel near Kabul airport? Did you or C.D. Donahue, General Donahue, or Admiral Pete Vaisley ask the Taliban to raid the hotel, and did they say no? So there were a variety of targets that we passed to the Taliban to take a look at, uh, more than 10. Uh, some they did, some they didn't action. We have nothing specific about a hotel that we asked them to take a look at. Just that we just don't have. I just don't have that information. Do you think the Taliban let the suicide bomber through intentionally? I don't believe so. Hmm. They differ there. He went on to say that he had about ten sites uh, that we asked the Taliban to investigate. Think about think about that statement. So think about your biggest enemy in life and say, "Do me a favor. Uh, check this out. Some people want to do me harm. Really, I want to do you harm." I've been fighting you for 20 years, and now you're asking me to protect you? Are you crazy? It, how the, I can't wrap my head around it two years later, and I didn't fight there. Can you imagine if you fought there, you look down, your hand's gone, your buddy's dead, and you realize General McKenzie knew this would happen. He's probably a fine man, but he was totally ignored by a president who, according to a book that was just released, did not even do the research and the deep understanding before he made this decision. He knew more. He wouldn't listen to anybody. 
He understood this is a bad war. These are bad guys. Ghani's bad. I, I want out. Well, you realize the downside of out is China's in. The downside of out is you no longer have a window into Iran, into Pakistan, China, and you no longer have the Bagram Air Base, which we basically rebuilt. It was originally dug out uh, by the Russians, but we gave it. That was a looking glass into all our enemies. Dangerous, absolutely. You know what's uh, also dangerous? 38th parallel in, in, uh, in Korea. You know what was dangerous for a long time? Japan. You know what was going to happen again? You know what was dangerous for a long time? West and East Germany. We had troops there. And that's what happens. I, I know every day was dangerous. But now think about the amount of people that will die around the world because terror has now found a home there. And also they have 4 to $7 billion worth of equipment. They're now in terrorist hands. So that's General McKenzie. And what he just said is in direct contrast with the sniper that lost two limbs that said he believed he had within his sights the suicide bomber and was not given permission to pull the trigger. McKenzie said basically that never happened. I don't know. Who do you believe? Here's a look back at General Milley, September 2021, uh, giving his testimony. Meanwhile, he would have had credibility. Think about this. General Milley turned on Trump, called up China on January 6th. Nothing's happening here. Don't fight us. We're not going to fight you guys. There's going to be no turnover. You know, killing Trump behind the scenes. So he had credibility. If he said, you do this, I'm out. Because I am chairman of the uh, Central Command. I'm going to be looked at as the one who was there. Years from now, they're going to say, who was in charge, General Milley? Well, that was bad advice. You gave you civilian leadership. Cut 17. My assessment was uh, back in the fall of 20, and it remained consistent throughout, that uh, we should keep a steady state of 2,500, and it could bounce up to 3,500, maybe something like that, uh, in order to move toward a negotiated, gated solution. Thank you. What about General Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense? Doesn't say much or do much that I could tell, but he was asked in September 2021. Here's what he said, cut 18. As I've said before, I always keep my uh, my advice to the president uh, confidential, uh, but I am very much satisfied that we had a, a thorough uh, policy uh, review, and I believe that uh, all of the, the parties uh, had an opportunity to provide input, and that input uh, was received. So when President Biden said he never got input, that something disastrous like this would happen— He's basically being told by his secretary of defense for, I think, four-star general, Lloyd Austin, we told you. General Milley, we told you. Frank McKenzie, I still tell you. And I regret that it was done. It really wasn't his decision. I know if you're a colonel, you got to take orders from a general. If you're a major from a colonel, I know it. And if you just keep on saying, I don't like this, I'm not going to do it. I just think this is a little different because you're not necessarily saying, I don't want my hands on this. What you're saying is it's wrong. And it might have forced the president to revisit it or alter his plans, which would have been in our country's interest, which ultimately is why you serve. But you might just listen to me now. You might be in the military. You might be wearing camouflage and say, well, Brian's never been in. What does he know? I know it's good for the country. And that was not good. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. I guess to say the least, the, 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 the polls are not, uh, well, not great. And it tells us that, you know, voters 
expressing uh, some apprehension here. It's, it's pretty clear. I mean, there's not much else you can say when you, you look at them. You, you can't look at this and not say that you're concerned. It's just for me to come on television and say, I don't find this alarming or troubling at all. Would be, it would be stupid. I mean, I wouldn't do that. James Carville, uh, you know, he's big Biden guy. And he's been sometimes he's really honest before an election. He'll be honest this far out. When it gets close, he'll just talk about how Biden's going to win. But he just looks at these polls and they're absolutely terrible. And I was watching last night Laura Ingram show, and he had, she had a Democrat on, and he said, listen, you said Reagan had the same numbers, Obama had the same numbers, he couldn't get reelected, and he came all the way back. Huge difference. One's got a track record he's proud of. They brought, he brought down the end of the Cold War, won the Cold War. I'm pretty sure you could run on that. And number two is he could get himself out of trouble. We're watching Joe Biden get worse almost every day. The speeches he makes, the things he says, the fiction that's emerging, the investigation that's becoming more transparent by the day. Do you know that 60% of the country believe that Joe Biden had some role in Hunter Biden's business dealings? That's what we've been saying, but no one's believing. Carly Shimka is here, co-host of Fox and Friends. First, Carly, uh, you did not hear James Carville say that on our show, but we've heard Democrats are, are being honest. It's alarming. Yeah. uh, So if 60 percent believe that Joe Biden had something to do with Hunter Biden's business dealings, the other 40 percent are quite possibly asleep uh, because it's pretty inevitable. Given Devin Archer's testimony and uh, all the rest. Yeah, but the people back to Tony Bobulinski, too. Would you know that they're they're spinning Devin Archer's testimony and they're saying, well, yeah, uh, we never really said specifically. We never said what Joe Biden's going to do or Hunter Biden's own emails himself. You know, right. the big My guy. dad's sitting next to me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So the James Carville thing is uh, it was just one little nugget of uh, the whole uh, coverage of the CNN polls. And I was wondering what the Biden administration must have been going through watching the typically favorable coverage, because even the banners were like there was one that said fears skyrocket among Democrats as Biden's numbers suffer. Another one just said bad news for Biden, like just in bold letters at the bottom of the screen. And in these polls, his approval rating is 39 percent. But I think even more damning is most Democrats uh, wish that there was an alternative to Biden. Uh, 67 percent said somebody else. But I think it's becoming too late for anybody else to jump in. See, I know you're saying, uh, of course, Joe Biden had something to do with his business dealings. But there are people like David Axelrod. We still have him. We could probably play that back, right, Eric, from yesterday? Just have – when you could, when you can, if you could call up Axelrod uh, from yesterday. He came out. They are still trying to distance themselves from Hunter. Hunter crack, you know, it's, it's not a little good that Hunter Biden's got this problem with uh, crack and hookers yeah. and his brother's widow and uh-huh. throwing guns in dumpsters. And well, <laughs> yeah, it happens. Yeah, you know, everyone's Saturday. got that crazy son. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, he puts on a suit and tie and does high-wire business dealings. So, David, I, so this indictment comes down, and I put on Anderson Cooper's show to say, is this even going to make his rundown? Mm-hmm. So Axelrod's one of his first gets. president wasn't involved with this very clearly. This was something that uh, involved something that Hunter Biden did on his own uh, and involved his own drug addiction and his own uh, misrepresentation. Uh, but it, it fuels what the Republicans in Congress are trying to fan, which is uh, the idea that Hunter Biden is involved in a bunch of illicit activities, and uh, they want to try and link the president to these. And this this will be a log in that fire, even though he has nothing to do with this. So when, this is what I'm talking about. You and I are logical, right? Logical. 
they're not logical. They they are trying to still snow their listeners and viewers into saying Joe has nothing to do with this. Just a bad sign. You understand that you got an addict that's right. a friend of yours or a, or a relative. You understand. Yeah. Well, just because this happened a while ago now doesn't make it any less true. But I remember when Tony Bobolinsky was on Fox News like two years ago. And he was saying that when he was talking to Joe Biden's brother and saying, listen, you know, Joe Biden is involved in these business dealings with CFC. Uh, what if he runs for president again? What happens then? And uh, Joe Biden's brother said, well, just plausible deniability. And it's proof is in the pudding because that was his go to in the first few years in office until there was more pressure and more pressure from the media. And it start the whole thing started to fall apart with uh, Hunter Biden's email. And now what is Hunter Biden doing suing? He's suing over his emails that apparently aren't his. Right. So that's a whole other ball game. But then Devin Archer saying, listen, 20 calls. Uh, were made between President hey, Biden yes. yeah, and uh, Burisma. And then your interview was great with uh, Victor Shokin. And it turns out that other people in the Obama administration were sending emails to Victor Shokin saying, you know what, you're doing a really good job in uh, take, you know, the, cor- the corruption is no longer there in Ukraine and you're doing a very good job. And the whole line of questioning from Biden or his defense has been that he was corrupt. So it's so interesting is that I was listening to I, – I try to I, – I know what I think, and I know basically what the shows are going to do, and I know the guests. So I'm always flipping around, especially for this show. I'm trying to get different uh, sound. So I started listening to this uh, – to someone describing – trying try to make excuses for Joe Biden. He said, what I can't make an excuse for is going to the Council of Foreign Relations and making a statement like that. What he cannot make an excuse for? He can't. He says, I can never – Possibly excuse going to the Council of Foreign Relations and bragging that you're using USA dollars yeah. as leverage to get people fired on every level. That's wrong. That's not what you're supposed to be doing. Right. America thuggishness and basically extortion. You want your aid in a desperate country what, trying desperately not to be invaded and create its own identity? Fire this guy. Yeah, that, totally. that diminishes the uh, also the self-esteem of that nation. Uh, that president, are you really – you're subservient to another country, Prashenko at the time, and then to say it and then to turn out it's not even true and that Obama never wanted it. And now they, they ask these European Union representatives. They go upon further review. We heard that Sh- uh, Shokin was corrupt. We didn't see it. I know. And Why you know, would you ever say I that? I know. It's so true. And it's, it's so frustrating because if the, if you replace the D with an R, I mean, this would truly be – around the clock news coverage and because it's only in you know on fox news and conservative media it becomes i think that some people feel like it's a little bit less legitimate or like maybe it's just an attack that has no uh basis in reality although people are starting to now realize going back to that cnn poll i think it was 55 percent of people thought that uh joe biden acted inappropriately when it comes to hunter biden's business dealings i wonder how that's going to play in the election though um i I still think that people care more about the what people you know kitchen table issues, the economy, and all that. True, which means I'm not saying it's going to be a 49 to one Ronald Reagan win over Walter Mondale, mm-hmm. but when you talk about election being found in key states by 120,000 people, yeah, could be a difference. Yeah, that's as true. well as you know, the president can't run as the economy. You see the numbers. You can say whatever he's you running, want. He's running. He's trying. I think they're going to pull back. Don't you? Did you see the image ad they have out now? The image ad they have of him going to see Zelensky in a war zone going 40 hours. That's one ad. But then the other ad that aired during the football game yesterday was all about the economy. And hilariously, a part of the ad, 30-second spot, 
several seconds of it were dedicated to energy independence. <laughs> Can you believe that? You mean the same day that they cut drilling yeah. in Alaska? Yes, exactly. It so, said, you know, Joe Biden has, is increasing our energy independence. Meanwhile, do you want to be inspired? Do what I would love to be inspired. Here it is. Biden-Harris 2024. A nearly 40-hour journey in and out of Ukraine. President Biden left Washington, D.C. at 4 a.m. on Sunday. He landed in eastern Poland and then took a nine-and-a-half-hour train to Kiev. He entered Ukraine under the cover of night. And in the morning, Joe Biden walked shoulder-to-shoulder with our allies in the war-torn streets, standing up for democracy in a place where a tyrant is waging war to take it away. You know the Budweiser ads, Real Man of Courage? Yeah. I think it's the same guy. Real Man. Well, yeah, he's been out of work for a while since Bud, right. since Bud Light changed their tune. Can't really win them over now. Yeah. Uh, so, listen, I, I like foreign policy, but his foreign policy record's horrendous. This Afghanistan book is coming out. The general's speaking out. Yeah, and that's all relates to this. And then I you know. look at a situation where we're giving them enough not to lose but not to win. And now you have Republicans going, mm-hmm. yeah, count me out. Well, listen, when it comes to that ad, I do have to say I, I appreciate it's not perfect, but I appreciate the president's position over uh, Ukraine more than some people in the Republican Party who are just totally isolationist and say that we should. Uh, I do. Yeah. Say but, that we should stop funding the war entirely. But it's like this. It's like we don't that. live in a bubble. It's a, yeah, I'm a, I'm a giant fan, but yet their offense is backwards and their defense seems to uh, lack communication and, uh, and coordination. Well, I'm still a giant fan. So I, I applaud the mission, but the execution, I don't want to get behind because I see the frustration. The Ukrainians can't really speak out because if they start speaking out making Joe Biden look bad, then he he's going to yeah. really slow walk his, uh, his actions. And I look right now that Vladimir Putin evidently thinks Trump's going to win and might be waiting to see if Trump's going to if Trump's going to come out and say, I don't want any part of this war, which would be disastrous for America, because in my view, a win for Russia is a win for China. Of course it is. Yeah, that's the whole thing. By the way, a lot of people don't agree with what I just said yeah. and what you just agreed with. A lot of people listening right now. I wonder why. I, I, nobody's, been, nobody's been able to explain to me how allowing Russia to get what they want. Meanwhile, there's this alliance between Russia, China, Iran, Iran and North Korea, how that wouldn't impact all those bad foreign actors who are actively working against us. I mean, you can't let these, you know, immoral actors just do what they want and try and reshape the globe according to how they feel. That's not the United States' stance. They were, you know, invaded. Ukraine was invaded. Yeah. Uh, it's a sovereign country. So it's there's also a morality element involved. And I really do think that one of the reasons why Nikki Haley is um, – Getting a bit of a bump in the polls is because of her position on foreign policy. I hope so. Uh, and Mike, the best thing to ever happen to Mike Pence and Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, because he's so bold, great communicator, but he's way off, in my view, on foreign policy. Not for Senator Josh Hawley. Probably, Josh Hawley's probably like, great. And I like Senator Hawley, but he is way out there on the right and isolationist. Mm-hmm. And the other thing would be people look at Ukraine and think Trump was impeached because of Ukraine. That's had nothing to it. do with Zelensky. Yeah, had nothing to do with anybody. It had to do with what Joe Biden was doing, and the way the president pursued it left an opportunity for Nancy Pelosi to sidetrack the country. Those are two separate things. And I see that yeah. right I when know. we agree, but sometimes the way you say it is, if 
I'm, uh, I don't agree with you. No, no, I'm trying to – no, I'm agreeing with you. We all yes, agree. I'm very sensitive. Yeah. Well, the other thing I think it is is if, if we're just being completely honest, um, Rep- Democrats do it and so do Republicans. The second Biden did start to send some more powerful weapons, a lot of Republicans took the position, oh, well, now we should stop. You know, it's like everything that the other party does is wrong. So now I have to take the opposite stance. Right. Let me tell you, if he didn't give any weapons or any money, I think all Republicans, more Republicans would be aligned in that we should be doing. more. And here's why you're right, because when Barack Obama witnessed the taking of Crimea and later the Donbass region, the so-called Russian separatists, he sent blankets and MREs. And that was what. Yeah, I know. Vladimir Putin was going on. Yeah. I'll take more. And what are they going to do? Send more MREs? Totally. And then the last thing about this um, is people do constantly say we need to take care of our own country first. And I completely understand that and respect that position. We need to take care of our southern border. But those I mean, there are two separate pools Thank of you. money. Right. So yes. like you you should be doing you could be doing both. It's not an either or. I find you're so much smarter when you agree with me. <laughs> right? I'm just, we're going to discuss that. Right. I don't know if there's anything we truly disagree on when it comes to politics. Really? Yeah. Well, let's try and figure this out. Or even like personal things. Right. Let's just blow out the show and see if there's anything we disagree on. What do you think, Allison? Have you ever heard us disagree? Or when she left the room, have I ever ranted how crazy I thought Carly was? Honestly? Yeah. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> so rude. Back in a moment. Both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade. Information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. You gotta know your love language. I read a book. Some guy wrote a book, Dr. Gary Chapman wrote a book called Five Love Languages. According to Dr. Gary Chapman, there are five languages of love between a man and wife. Tammy and I read that book twice in one week because we didn't see our love language in there. (laughs) Yeah, apparently bitterness, sarcasm, not part of Dr. Gary Chapman's love life. Jeff Allen will be on the show on One Nation Saturday night and also be on this show a little bit later. Kali Shimka is with us right now. And we're really... It's the question that everybody's talking about. Do we disagree on anything? Oh, yes. Right, right, right. Right. Correct. Uh, of course. And by the way, do you have a love language with your with your husband? Oh, that's a good question. Um, we're not big gift-giving people at right. all. We Neither don't... is Allison. Allison, you guys don't give each other anything, right? Brian appreciates that fact. <laughs> yeah. I. You know what? A gift for me would be don't get me anything so I don't have to get you anything either. Wow. It's just, well, it's just like a time saver. I'm oh, a little crunched for time. So, right. yeah. I said that to my mom but once on and Christmas, she did not appreciate it. you guys sit around it. and not give gifts to each other? Uh, me and Pete? Yeah. Uh, no, we do not. Yeah, now that Brock is in our lives, that'll probably change. But, yeah, we never, we've never done gifts. Do you get gifts uh, to your no, parents? Th- uh, correction. He has given me gifts before, and it hasn't gone the the best. Like what? Does he buy clothes? Yeah, so the oh gosh, this was like we met when I was on my twenty third birthday is when we met, and um, he, the first gift that he gave me for my I don't know twenty fourth or twenty fifth birthday, it just looked like panic, like you know, it was just like ah, I forgot. It was a turtleneck from Ann Taylor Loft. Ah. So it's like thanks, <laughs> not necessarily my personal. Like, would, could you ever see me wearing this? You know, is that and, what you said before uh, you said thank you? No, I don't think I was rude about it, but I didn't, never wore it. Right. Now I'd wear turtlenecks. The first, uh, time I wasn't. The first gift I got Dawn, 
uh, before we were married, I got her a Mr. T-Bank. Because at that time, the A-Team was really hot. And I thought it would be a good way for her to save money. I also... Wait, wait, wait. wait. Um, a, like a little personal yeah, piggy you, bank you with put, Mr. T on it? Right. Yeah, it was, a piggy, <laughs> it was a bank, and you put the money in his hand. Did you meet her when she was nine? <laughs> I know. She, she loved it. Um, oh, she, I, I wish I had the money for a turtleneck. Uh, and then the one, my biggest mistake, uh-huh. I don't even know what I was thinking, was I thought, why don't I get her a parakeet that doesn't fly? Right? Isn't that dumb? So I go in there, and there's parakeets. There's parakeets. There's the $9 one that Aaron Cage, but for 22 bucks, you could get one that uh, doesn't fly and stays on a perch. I'm like, wouldn't that be great? She could keep, she was living at home at the time. Wouldn't that be great for her to have? Now, I said to myself, I thought it was, I thought it was ne- never allowed to fly. I didn't know eventually the wings would go back, and you would definitely need a cage. So next thing you know, she's like, it can fly. And it's flying all around the house. And those parakeets never die. <laughs> I'm swearing. And she, you got her a bird? I got her a bird. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's so dumb. Oh. Like, what was I thinking? So what ended up happening? It, they end up liking the bird. The whole family liked Aww, the bird, but they... end up in a cage. I'm like, I could have spent $9. So its wings were clipped, and then I guess they grew back. Yeah, like, like I, they, I never even asked any questions. I'm like, I'd like the one that doesn't fly. <laughs> this way you could treat it like a pet. It'll be in the kitchen on a perch. And it's just... like a starfish. They just, they just grow back. Yeah, they just, yeah. <laughs> so eventually grew back, and I'm like, she's like, it is flying everywhere. Wow. Brian, I think that's a good gift, actually. A parakeet? Yeah. You know, if ever we exchange, listen, keep it in mind. It's a pain in the ass. You're cleaning the cage all the time. It smells the water, the sandpaper. Well, sand I will say paper. that one uh, one year, I wanted, I was really pushing for a dog, and my mom came home with a canary. It was a little was disappointing. Yeah, She's yeah. like, "We got a pet." <laughs> it's like, oh, thanks. Okay. Yeah, good. So good luck that. with that. I'm moving out. Okay, bye. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Uh, we come to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan, heard around the country, around the world. Uh, coming up at the bottom of the hour, Bill McKern, Wall Street Journal. Here's what I thought was a great column that uh, I wanted to bring forward. Bring out because we talk about these debates and we talk about Republicans and their philosophy. And now we have to fund Ukraine or not fund Ukraine, take on China or not take on China, or revamp the Navy or not revamp the Navy. And people on the Republican side are now saying, well, I'm not for forever wars. We're going to look into that and why that is a just a ridiculous statement in my view and in his view. But he does says a lot more eloquently. He's going to be joining us shortly. Jennifer Griffin did a series, uh, did an interview with General McKenzie, which is uh, fascinating and interesting. She's going to be with us in a matter of moments. In fact, let's get started with the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's big three. Number three. I have a lot of regrets about uh, about how it ended in Afghanistan. I have a regret with a basic decision, which I think was the wrong decision, and I have a, and I particularly regret that we did not choose to begin to evacuate our people at the time we made the decision to bring out our combat forces. Wow, uh, the regrets he has a few. The fact is, the problem is the president didn't listen. Mackenzie speaks. The general in charge of Afghanistan talks about the exit and how he thinks about it every single day and more. We'll talk about what General Mackenzie said, what he did, and the ramifications for America. 
Number two. There's a state law that says every child, I've had three sons in public school, must be vaccinated from A to Z or you don't step in the front door. Now all these illegal alien kids, close to 22,000, no vaccinations, no medical record. Yep, uh, there you go. Curtis Lee was speaking out about the craziness right now in New York City and maybe your city. Uh, yes, Mr. President, you busted the border, and now schools, cities, and party officials are scurrying to deal with the mess that this administration has made. Ultimately, this could break the Biden team and the party at the ballot box. I offer some insight. Number one. Mr. Stan, we have brand new CNN polling this morning, and the numbers are rough for President Biden. Still early, but Biden's approval rating has sunk to 39 percent. Nearly 60 percent of voters think Biden's policies are making the economy worse. Okay, it's okay to panic, Democratic Party, two-thirds of which say they don't want Joe to be the party's nominee, and he's losing to almost every Republican contender. We're going to look at the game plan and the fallout as the president goes overseas to the G20. Jennifer Griffin joins us now, Fox News Channel's chief national correspondent. Uh, Jennifer, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. So, so Jennifer, we saw McKenzie, Millie, and we heard from uh, Secretary of Defense Austin, former general, uh, talk about what they recommended to the president. Different how the president recalls the advice he got leading to our horrendous exit from Afghanistan. First off, when did you realize that McKenzie was ready to talk? Well, you know, Brian, you know me. I've been at the Pentagon for about 15 years, and these are individuals that I've watched um, in different roles in both over in Afghanistan, Iraq, fight against ISIS, al-Qaeda. And then, uh, you know, they didn't just start off being CENTCOM commander. They moved up through the ranks, and you have conversations over the years, and you build trust, and you have a two-way conversation. And so I told General McKenzie, who's now retired, um, he's not the head of CENTCOM anymore, but he did oversee the withdrawal from Afghanistan, that I think that he needed to speak and set the public record straight. I felt that after hearing a lot of the Gold Star families on Capitol Hill, that they felt that they needed to hear from people like him. He is, because he's retired, I think a lot of the people in the military that I speak to who were there um, overseeing the withdrawal or part of the withdrawal, they feel kind of muzzled, like they can't get their point of view out there. And so General McKenzie being retired, I think reflects some of the things I've been hearing for a long time behind the scenes, and I felt it was very important that he sit down, answer the hard questions, and and let let the nation begin to hear a, a more full picture of what what the decision-making was like. Um, I mean, it was very clear sitting across from him that the decision still haunts him, and that he, ha- he, he said in no uncertain terms that he has regrets. But it's not one person's fault. The Afghan war and the way it ended, I mean, I think you and I have discussed, this goes back to many decisions over four administrations that really made it a very, very um, messy 20-year war. It was necessary after 9-11, but how it was prosecuted, I think the historians you know, will eventually have the final say, but we are just writing that first draft of history, and I thought it was important to hear General McKenzie's voice. Right. Uh, the way we left to really defines really how we view the whole thing and the advantage of being there as imperfect as uh, our presence was uh, being there located in between Pakistan, China, uh, Russia, and to be in Afghanistan and to have a presence there and to have a military strategic presence there. There's so much upside to it. And there was no clamor in America from the polls to say, Oh, we got to get those 2,500 out. Right. right. But the, so and that was something that Barack Obama wanted to do it was something Trump wanted to do. And but 
it, which blows me away about this last book that's published, I read the excerpts, it didn't even look like President Biden put the time in to come up with these decisions. It's not like he poured through the same stuff that McKenzie was and they came up with a different conclusion. He was just saying, I know more. I want out. I think what you have to look at, Brian, and I think it's a fact to look back at how many of our more recent presidents served in the military. Um, the last four, they didn't, and so or three did not. And so each of those presidents, um, from Obama to Trump to Biden, they uh, they all felt very strongly that they wanted to be the president to pull U.S. troops out to end the war in Afghanistan, to end the war in Iraq. And we saw the consequences when you pulled out of Iraq. I was there that day with uh, Defense Secretary Panetta when they sort of shut off the lights in Iraq, and we looked at each other as we got on the plane, and, and he said to me, um, we'll be back. And guess what? They were. A few years later, uh, there, there they were having to fight ISIS again uh, in Syria and Iraq. I think what we're, and it, I think we have a clip from the McKenzie interview I did yesterday, in which I asked him point blank, "Does he think that uh, U.S. troops should be in Afghanistan today?" I yeah. don't know what the in answer fact, yeah, is in well, terms me, of. Yeah, here's your yeah, question, let's play, and here's play his the answer. clip, and yeah. then I, I have a thought. In your opinion, should the U.S. still have troops in Afghanistan today, from a national security perspective? That was my recommendation then. I see no reason to change that recommendation now. And I think what he – then I followed up and I asked him about General Carrillo, who's the current CENTCOM commander, and he said six months ago that uh, it would take ISIS about six months to be able to strike U.S. interests outside of Afghanistan. And I said to him, you know, that six-month time frame is now. Do you, are you concerned? And he – and General McKenzie said he was. I think that's what bothers a lot of the, uh, the generals who had to go to zero. You know, they recommended 5,000 troops. They were re- willing to compromise with 2,500 in order to keep those uh, those bases over there. Um, the president, you go back to the recent book that was written, the president's been thinking about getting out of Afghanistan since he was vice president. Um, um, Joe Biden has been consistent about that. And I know that from various situation room meetings that took place back in the time of the bin Laden raid. He wanted to go start winding down after the bin Laden raid. And again, arguably, uh, what are the historians going to say 10 years from now? Should, should the U.S. still be in Afghanistan? Afghanistan 10 years from now? I don't know the answer, but I think it was very important and very healing for hopefully healing for the nation and for uh, Gold Star families to, uh, uh, and not just the Abbey Gate Gold Star families, but Gold Star families from throughout the war. More than 2,400 Americans died in Afghanistan. I think it's time to start processing what the nation just went through post 9-11. We're coming up to the 9-11 anniversary on Monday. And and think about um, that w- this is a nation that has been in a state of trauma for since 9-11. And, you know, how do we begin healing? And I think hearing from human beings who were in those positions of power, these were not evil people who were saying, let's do something really bad for America. Let's harm, let's get um, some Marines killed at Abbey Gate. These were people who had very tough, very bad decisions to make. And I think it humanizes it to be able to hear from your military leaders about how difficult those decisions are and how it weighs on them. You've seen more battlefields and talked to more people uh, in the military than than almost anyone listening right now, unless they grew up there or or uh, or at West Point. So having said that, I don't think people look at our, our war fighters and say, well, you guys lost the war because it wasn't their decision to lose the war. It's not as if that they not. said we got to leave. I, I don't, you know, it, it is if you're blaming the quarterback because the quarter coach said, I want you to spike the ball instead of, instead of trying to advance it to the end zone. Don't blame me. You called the play. 
So they were given an impossible timeline. I think that's yes, what comes out loud and clear in this interview. The timeline, uh, when you set an arbitrary date and you tell the enemy when you're leaving, that's when they Crazy. start shooting at you. They were trying to avoid scenes in Saigon. And I think one thing that's gotten last, lost in the last two years of this discussion is there were two parts to this withdrawal. There was the withdrawal of U.S. forces, were, and those U.S. forces, military forces, were out on July 4th all of them. And that's left the embassy and all of the Afghans who were still waiting for SIV visas that were backed up through a long pipeline and not getting approved and not able to get on planes. Those U.S. troops did not get fired on on the way out. There was a very clean uh, removal of those troops. It set into motion certain consequences, including leaving Bagram and a, a prison full of prisoners that included the ISIS-K suicide bomber who went to Abbey Gate that day. But the real problem, and this has not been discussed enough, is that the ambassador, Ross Wilson, wanted to stay, resisted, and dug in his heels and did not want to start emptying the embassy because there was a sort of a fantasy that the U.S. could stay and keep a political footprint in Afghanistan after there was no protection by the U.S. military. I've been going to Afghanistan since 1994, uh, uh, Brian, and I can tell you that it, that is naive at best. And General McKenzie talks about it in the interview. Right. I asked him, Point Blake, if you have time to play it about whether he was frustrated that the State Department took so long. And then the second part of the withdrawal was the NEO, the going back in, having to send U.S. troops back in to evacuate under duress at that airport right. without the benefit of having Bagram there. Here, here's cut 15. I have a lot of regrets about, uh, about how it ended in Afghanistan. I have a regret with a basic decision, which I think was the wrong decision. And I, have a, and I particularly regret that we did not choose to begin to evacuate our people, our, our embassy personnel, our American citizens, and our at-risk Afghans at the time we made the decision to bring in our combat forces. I think that was a serious mistake, and I think that led to the events of August 2021 directly. All right. Uh, so, but he's regretting, but in a way he's not, he's not using the word regret. I regret the decision. He didn't make the decision. But but that's what we have to understand. That's what's been lost in two years of discussion about this. The U.S. military salutes smartly once the civilian leadership gives them orders. They were given a timeline. They were told to be out by August 31st, and, and that was by the commander-in-chief, Joe Biden, the president of the United States, took the decision. He still stands by that decision. History may prove him right in some way. <laughs> we don't know. But there also was a president prior to Joe Biden, uh, President Trump, who cut a deal with the Taliban and set in motion a lot of this um, and and Biden could have turned around and, and made a reverse decision, but he believes, if you listen to what he says in interviews, uh, President Biden says he believes they would have had to start fighting the Taliban again, and he did not want to send another American uh, to, to have to do that. So history is going to have to be the judge, but I think we need to start understanding that the U.S. military does not make these decisions. They execute these decisions. Absolutely. And, I, so, and, I, and then they are silenced because they can't become so-called politicized and speak out against a sitting commander-in-chief. It is an impossible situation for them, and I think the American people need to understand that a bit more before where they start blaming every no. general for everything that goes wrong. I know. I think I, I, I hope people don't believe that because it's pretty clear what ha- what happened is it wasn't there. When you say this is uh, this is the force I'm going to leave behind and why I want him out. Then he says, I got to get everybody out because I, you mm-hmm. can't leave me with 500 people to get the Bagram Air Base and secure the up. country. So that's when Millie says, I got to pull out. 
And Millie, evidently, you would know better than me, but I've gotten from two different people in real time memorialized his decision as opposed to what he was told. So yeah. in the end, he wanted to he wanted people to know this is not me, but I am a I am I'm I'm, I'm a soldier. Uh, I'm yeah, a soldier. I got to do it. I take and and remember, there were heated discussions in the Situation Room. Heated discussions. I know, you know, we ha- saw the leaks from some of the transcripts of those Situation Room debates, where General Milley made impassioned appeals to the president uh, not to do this and to the national security team not to do this uh, because of what he laid out would be the consequences. And those consequences then ended up happening. We, I remember having, and the problem is, Brian, after what, what happens is we have a lot of conversations. Many of them are off the record. But I can tell you in real time that in the spring, April, prior to the pullout in August, there were senior military commanders uh, who told me that they lost sleep at night because they knew they would pull out and then they would get an emergency phone call from the embassy saying, hey, we need your help. Come back and evacuate us. And that's what happened. So there were two parts to the withdrawal, and the military gets very frustrated that the American people lump the two together. They got their people out by July 4th. But the State Department, remember, it's an interagency decision-making process. They wanted to stay. Gotcha. They were dragging their heels to the very, very last minute. To the detriment of the operation. Here's General McKenzie on the withdrawal, how it's going to be viewed. How do you think history will treat the withdrawal and President Biden's decision to bring all U.S. troops home from Afghanistan? Well, I hope history will divide it into sort of two into two bends. I think the men and women on the ground did a remarkable job. I think the Joint Force did a did a uh, did a very brave uh, and resilient job on the ground of trying to get as many people out as they can. I believe history is going to view the decision to come out of Afghanistan in the way that we did and the manner that we were directed to come out. Uh, as a fatal flaw. And I think history is going to be very hard on that. Right. And no one can argue with that. They disagree on a couple of things, and I would love for them to get together on this, Uh, being able to, did you actually have on site the would-be suicide bomber? Could you have stopped it? And Joe McKenna says no. And then the, well, the, that was very clear from the interview, and that's something I wanted to address because I, I see this disconnect between what is yeah. being said and what is being told to Gold Star families, um, and they are in pain, and, and they are seeking answers for the loss of their children, which you and I can never possibly understand the pain they're in. But I, uh, from listening to what General McKenzie and others have said, there was not the clear-cut kind of intelligence that is being described where people uh, were able to maybe uh, stop or prevent that suicide bomber. And I think it's misleading to the American public to suggest that there was and that people didn't act on it. Great interview. I think it's important. Two years later, we cannot forget, and we still got to get to the bottom of it. And we're going to pay the price, sadly, because of the way we left. And maybe Ukraine, uh, the war that happened is is the beginning of paying that price. Jennifer Griffin, thanks so much. Great job as usual. Thank you, Brian. Back in a moment. It's Brian Kilmeade. From his mouth to to your your ears, ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. So General Keene disagreed with me. Just fresh off. Welcome back, everybody. Fresh off uh, Jennifer Griffin's great report and interview with General McKenzie speaking about what led to the decision, disastrous decision to leave Afghanistan the way we did. I asked General Keene this morning, I just said, 
in reality, don't you think, being that this is such an horrendous decision and these generals and the Secretary of Defense Austin knew it was a terrible decision, they would have cataclysmic results, should he have put his stars down? He says, no, you can't really do that because when I ask a colonel, when a colonel asks a major to do something, they don't like it, they're going to put their stars down. And here's my point. Not that you just agree, but you know politics if you're chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, especially Milley. He's got all this street cred because he won against Trump. If he said, Mr. President, I, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to be chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and, uh, and preside over the biggest disaster in American military history that we're going to pay for for decades. So if you do this, just so you know, you've got to do it with a different general. This president would have changed his mind because he knows politically he couldn't withstand the criticism. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Most Democratic voters hope for a change at the top of the ticket, and Americans don't take the president and his word when he talks about his son, Hunter. Joe Biden's like that grandpa that you love, that you believe in, you owe a lot, but you you, you start to wonder, uh, you know, would would you give this grandpa a high-stress job for six more years, or would you want something else for him? 55% of Americans, a majority, believe Biden's actions related to the Hunter Biden probe, inappropriate. Problematic new polling numbers out this morning for President Biden. The CNN poll finds his approval rating sinking to just 39%. So that's important because these are people normally uh, singing the praises of Joe Biden and leaving all his problems behind, like falling down the stairs and saying ridiculous lies that everything from his fake Amtrak stories to his fake Mandela story to his ridiculous, I never got advice about leaving Afghanistan, that it would be this disastrous. All these things, people look the other way, but now they're not. And I'm wondering why. And the polls, but one reason, it's hard to just dismiss all your polls. These are CNN polls, and those are CNN commentators. Bill McGurn joins us now, Wall Street Journal editorial board guy, uh, writes great column, Main Street. And we'll get to your GOP column uh, when you talk about the GOP's forever war follies. I 100% agree, but you give great detail. But first, Bill, why do you think they are talking so freely about the free fall of Joe Biden? white democrats are yep or um look they're scared they they want to win simple as that and they're now having doubts that joe biden can win you know it's at least a question mark uh he's so unpopular his policies are unpopular you know he's going around selling bidenism and uh the polls show people are not buying so um they're afraid they're gonna they're gonna lose and they want him out there in time to get a new candidate. Is there enough time to set up a structure to get a candidacy going up and going? You know, I actually don't know the calendar for the Democrats because they're pushing back again. They don't like Iowa. They're pushing back against New Hampshire. New Hampshire's pushing back on them. They want to start in South Carolina. Uh, so I'm not sure what the calendar is, but let's say it's January. Can you get something going this quick? I don't know. I assume that the people they're talking about, maybe Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan or Gavin Newsom in California, you know, they're kind of preparing behind the scenes for contingency. I mean, look, they have to be prepared anyway. What if uh, Joe Biden has an accident for them that that takes them out? So I don't think they're just sitting on their hands saying, you know, we'll leave it to fate. Um, I think there's some uh, in charge. And remember, it'd be different. Um, 
from the Republican Party in that um, if Joe Biden stepped down, you know, there wouldn't be the possibility of Joe. So there has to be something else. So they would have to come up with some mechanism to do that. But don't you think uh, they'll have a problem looking past Kamala Harris? Do you see them going yeah. into a, uh, a battle royal? Yeah, I do think they would. But, you know, there are good arguments, Democratic arguments against Kamala Harris. Um, you know, last time around, she was the least popular candidate. She yep. dropped out of the primaries before there was even one vote. And I think you can make good argument that if you're going to leave the presidential ticket, you have to be the choice of Democratic voters. The problem is, Bill, you and I are talking logically. We're, not, we're pretending it's not a woman issue and a minority issue. What Democrat is going to sit there and say it's time to go past a female uh, minority uh, and look to the white governor of uh, Michigan and the white governor of California? I wish, it, I wish the Democrats weren't so into identity, but they are. That's the trouble they're going to have with their own uh, with their own criteria. Right. That's the problem of their own making. Look, the same thing with the press secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre. I think any objective measure is that she's not been a good press secretary. People are always complaining about her, but she's fireproof. She can't be fired because she checks a couple of boxes on the addendum meter and uh, they can't get rid of her without finding someone with identical identity politics uh, characteristics to replace her. Um, You know, it seems like they're always putting John Kirby up there and they would love to have him in there. But the idea of replacing her with an old white male, Mm -hmm. uh, I think, would be anathema to her own party. Yeah, white males are the worst, just for the record. And (laughs) uh, and if there is a black lesbian who wants to be press secretary, that's what it would take. Uh, That's basically what you're saying. So Bill McGurn... Uh, I want uh, you talk about the ridiculous statements, and I, I put President Trump in that, and many people don't agree with me when he talks about forever wars. No one goes into a war to last forever, uh, and you talk about that. But among the people that believe forever wars should be avoided and should be a part of our past is Senator Josh Hawley. Listen to him uh, yesterday, cut nine. I don't understand what the principle is that he's talking about. Is the principle neoconservatism? where we're supposed to transform every country into the image of the United States and be the world's policeman? I, I, that seems to be what these people think, what the neoconservatives think. I, I just take a different view. My view is, is that we're supposed to be defending the United States of America. My view is we're supposed to be putting American jobs and American workers and American prosperity first. That ought to be our number one goal, our number one priority. But that's just not how these neocons or the liberal globalists, it's not how they see things. The Lord, they've been dead wrong about this for decades they learned nothing from Iraq, nothing from Afghanistan. Now they're doing it all over again in Ukraine. So take that on. You do in your column. Okay. Um, for one thing, whenever I hear um, these things and, and it's uh, complaining about liberal globalists or neocons, that's name-calling. It's not an argument. I'm against forever wars, too. It's not in our interest. But as I write my column, the way around that is to win the war. I mean, you can do it the Biden way in Afghanistan, just surrender after 20 years of blood and treasure, just throw up your hands, have a chaotic uh, withdrawal, have um, uh, 13 Marines and sailors blown up at the airport. Uh, You can do it that way, surrender. But the way you get forever war is you go into something and you don't give enough wherewithal to win 
but you give just enough to keep fighting, which is what we're doing in Ukraine. And I, I think Joe Biden is in Ukraine only because he came after Afghanistan and he just couldn't go down as the guy who lost two countries in you know, the first two years of his administration. Um, it's very personal for me. You know, um, this stuff about neocons, I don't, I don't, I've never thought of myself as a neoconservative. I grew up at Bill Buckley, National Review. I worked for him later. I worked for the editorial page. Uh, when I was in the White House with George Bush and the Iraq War, I was there from 2005 to 2008. And right away, um, uh, there were good signs. The Iraq had the election. Remember, people sure. holding up their painted fingers yeah. that they had voted. And then it went south. Um, Al-Qaeda was accelerating the um, differences between the Shia and Sunni. You know, they would um, put bombs in a, a Sunni schoolyard and then attack a Shia market. And so they're really fomenting civil war. It was depressing. Every day you you read about um, people getting killed and our troops getting killed. And my boss, George W. Bush, I know he's reviled for this, but he was absolutely right. He said to himself, our policy is not working. We're not winning. And then he announced the surge. The surge was not just um, sending more troops. It was a wholesale change in strategy to go to a counterinsurgency strategy. And um, he was successful very fast. Then, of course, Obama squandered it by pulling our troops out too early, and then you had ISIS on the rise. But I think he um, he uh, he went in with the purpose of winning, and uh, you know a lot of people reviled him because he won a war that they had declared lost. You know, many conservatives were also attacking the surge at the end. I was there. Yeah. I was there. I, you know, I, I wrote the speech. I know exactly, you know, who is saying what. And so few, there was so little support. Everyone just wanted to hear we're pulling out. And, um, you know, Bush used to say to me, Billy, we're not leaving Iraq the way we left Vietnam from the rooftop of the an embassy. And he made good in that. He absolutely did. And, and by the way, no, no one goes into that, but people have to understand, it's not, I'm going to build a wall and enforce the border or help Ukraine. They have to explain why Ukraine is in national interest. It's, right. we, I want every billion here. I look at New York City, $4 billion in debt, paying money for illegal aliens, but that's nothing to do. One bad policy doesn't mean you don't defend right. your allies and don't see and that the Russians will dominate Eastern Europe again. Does anyone also, get the History Channel in their house? Yeah. Also, um, you know, they, they, we talk about the forever wars and endless wars. No one ever mentions the most endless, the Cold War. You know, um, yes, it's true. This is how we Margaret won. Thatcher, yeah, Margaret Thatcher said Reagan won without firing a shot. Not quite true. We didn't fire a shot at the Soviets. You know, our troops never fought theirs in battle. But we fought a lot of skirmishes along the way, Grenada. And that's the way to do it. Fight the small ones rather than the big ones. In Ukraine now, um, you know, so many things are at stake. Um, it's giving China pause about Taiwan. That's why the Japanese prime minister was in Ukraine, because he realizes what happens there affects what what happens in his neighborhood. And I think once once you're committed – 
you have to win. Remember, Reagan came into office. The Soviet Union was not just there. It was on the march. The Berlin Wall looked like a fixture that would be there forever. Um, Soviets had um, invaded Afghanistan, surprising Jimmy Carter. They had deployed missiles in Europe. They were fomenting revolution in Central America. Now we know, like, the empire, you know, with, with some good pushes from Reagan, was on the verge of collapse. It did not look that way when Reagan took the oath of office. And eight years later, um, it was a different story. The Berlin Wall was coming down and people were getting freed. And when Reagan went in, he told his advisor, I think Judge Clark, uh, I think George Schultz wrote it. Um, they were discussing, you know, the Soviet Union, what to do. And he said, I have an idea. We win, they lose. And I think Reagan was absolutely right. So all these people, um, you know, forget that. And also, I'll leave you one last thing about that. When you lose a war uh, or pull out like Afghanistan, the impact on American credibility, like if we want to have strategic ambiguity in Taiwan, which means we don't say whether we'd come to their aid or not, we keep aging guessing, the way to do that is from strength. It's to build them up and to do other things. I mean, Reagan gained credibility with the air controller strike. The Russians looked at that and said, God, this guy means business. And all these little things, that's a way to do it. And um, the, the, um, the blow to American prestige, we paid a long time for the failure in Vietnam. And I think we'd pay a long time for the uh, failure in Afghanistan and uh, possibly Ukraine if we don't give them what they need. See, see, but Bill, you know what you just did? You explained yourself. <laughs> and, and that's what this administration doesn't do. They live it to well, General Keene and Lindsey Graham and uh, Michael McCall, mostly Republicans, to go out there and calmly explain that this has nothing to do with the border wall and that your kids have, have autocratic classrooms and that there's two separate exactly. budgets and how it's in our national interest. And there, so instead of calmly explaining it and maybe getting some maps to understand, it, it, he just said he just does things, doesn't explain them, haphazardly asks for billions of dollars, and everybody that tries to back the policy feels like they were sold out. And I sit yeah, there, I, everybody I talk, I talk to less and less Republicans that can really get behind this strategy. Yeah, there is no strategy. I don't know what it is. You don't know what it is. Uh, it's staggering to me as a former presidential speechwriter. Bush gave many um, sure. addresses to the nation on what he's doing. When he gave the surge address, uh, he went on national TV. Yes. Um, it was it was a very unpopular move at the time, but he thought we had to do it. And also, you know, Bush had the idea that most presidents have. When you commit American troops, you know, you owe it to give an explanation to the mother of a Marine sitting at home in Ohio why her son is going to be put in harm's way in a country far away from ours. You owe it to her to say. And they, they might not like it, but they can respect it. The same thing with money. If you're spending the people's money, you should explain what it's for. I happen to think. The Ukrainians are grinding away at the Russian war machine and exposing its weaknesses and so forth. That is cheap at the price. It's not costing us any troops. Um, if we could have that in, in Iraq, 
you know, with the uh, an army like that, that would have been heaven. Um, so I think it's cheap at the price to uh, be grinding down uh, a world menace that uh, has a lot of weapons and a lot of troops. And, um, it, you know, it certainly beats sending Americans. It does. And if you explain how quick the Baltics would go down and how quick they can infiltrate an election to get a friendly leader of Poland, and next thing you know, there's a problem with the election, and a Yanukovych-type figure emerges at another place, and Moldova gets uh, steamed over, and they just uh, finish off uh, Georgia. And 15 years from now, they'll be going, what were they thinking? Why did they let the Russians just gradually gain power and prestige again? So this needs to be explained, but you don't – the loneliest person in the Biden administration is the speechwriter because he gives none, uh, and <laughs> that's he's in India now. Uh, Bill McGurn, thanks so much. I, I love what you outlined. It's not a forever war uh, – the GOP's forever war follies. It tells the truth. Thanks, Bill. You're welcome. Back in a moment. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. I had the pleasure of growing up in America before the lawyers took it over and ruined it on us. In my day, if a kid fell off the monkey bars and chipped a bone in his arm, that was tragic, but it was funny to the rest of us. <laughs> certainly wasn't reasons to take the monkey bars off the playground. We all did dumb things. That's how you learn not to do dumb things. I'll give you an example. When I was 12, someone told me to get a ball jar, a canning jar. Find some dry ice, put it in the jar, put the lid on it. So I said, what's going to happen? They said, it's going to blow up. And I said, cool. Where do I get dry ice at? And they said, the ice cream man. So one day I heard the ice cream man coming down my street. I run out with one of my mother's canning jars, and I ask, you got any dry ice? He said, what are you going to do with it? I said, I'm going to put it in this jar. I'm going to put the lid on it, and it's going to explode. Ice cream man says, oh, here's your dry ice. That's the America I grew up in. That is funny. Jeff Allen is going to be with us last hour, uh, and he's going to be on One Nation this weekend. Uh, talks about marriage, talks about life, obviously, and talks about what's happening in this uh, woke world, which, believe it or not, uh, he's not really approval of, uh, approving of. And I think you listen to the show. I'm pretty sure you understand that. Uh, meanwhile, also coming up on One Nation this weekend, Senator uh, Tim Scott. Have not talked to him in about two months on the air. I want to get an update, too. And he's got to feel great about the new poll that's out, the head-to-head with Joe Biden. Should he get the nomination? He wins. I know it's within the margin of error, but the fact is he does not have the publicity in the platform and doesn't have the national scope that President Biden's had for 40 years. You know, he's only had the Senate job, I think, for eight and just running for president for the last three months. So he's got to feel good about that. And we'll discuss that and so much more. Uh, you listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Go to BrianKilmeadeShow.com and order the podcast. And you can uh, always, always find us on social media. Keep it here. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. According to rehearsal, uh, this is when I talk. Hi, everyone. Brian Kilmeade here. Final hour of the week on uh, coming to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Heard around the country, around the world. Uh, Jeff Allen, the outstanding comedian, is going to be joining me at the bottom of the hour. He's also going to be joining One Nation this weekend at 8 o'clock Eastern time. Shannon Bream has just asked me to buy some time because she's not quite ready to come on. 
Uh, she wants to make sure she's perfect like she was last night on a special report. So before we get to Shannon, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I have a lot of regrets about uh, about how it ended in Afghanistan. I have a regret with a basic decision, which I think was the wrong decision. And I have a, and I particularly regret that we did not choose to begin to evacuate our people at the time we made the decision to bring out our combat forces. There you go. Uh, that is Commander uh, General, excuse me, Frank McKenzie. He has regrets more than the president says. But the general in charge of Afghanistan exit goes on the record two years later. The catastrophe that won't go away. We'll discuss it. Number two. is a state law that says every child, I've had three sons in public school, must be vaccinated from A to Z or you don't step in the front door. Now all these illegal alien kids, close to 22,000, no vaccinations, no medical record. That's who we're dealing with, and that is Curtis Sliwa. You busted the border, Joe, and now schools, now cities and party officials are scurrying, scurrying to deal with the mess you made. Ultimately, this could break the Biden presidency and his party at the ballot box. I offer my insight. Number one. Let's just in. We have brand new CNN polling this morning, and the numbers are rough for President Biden. Still early, but Biden's approval rating has sunk to 39 percent. Nearly 60 percent of voters think Biden's policies are making the economy worse. Kind of upbeat music for some bad news, right? Okay, it's time to panic. Two thirds of Democrats don't want you to run. They don't want you to be the nominee, Mr. President. As you go over to the G20, we look at the game plan and the Democratic fallout. Let's bring in Shannon Bream. No fallout for her. She's always winning. Shannon, welcome back. It is great to be with you. I'm looking forward to the part of the show where you're going to share your insights. That sounds good. You know, that hurts my feelings. No, a lot I mean of people that. No, a lot of people look forward to my insights. Are I you, do too. Are you hearing something different? No, it was a good tease. I'm saying I'm one of those people. All right. Here's my you. Okay, let me see. What did I promise? I promised insight. Oh, I insight. believe that this border issue has overwhelmed so many cities so much, none bigger than New York City, where they had to turn kids away from school. I mean, think about mm-hmm. that. You're in fourth grade. Uh, Mom, Dad, I I can't go in to my classroom. Or wrapped around the block in Long Island City, 100 degrees yesterday or 90 degrees, and they go, you can just go home. Go home, really? And now, no end in sight to this catastrophe. Quoting from the mayor, who went out of his way to blame Trump, and I just believe as Democratic mayors fight with Democratic governors who fight with the Democratic president who doesn't want to hear it. I believe that this is this is going to do to them, potentially, what Roe v. Wade did to the Republicans in the midterms. And that, what do you think about my thoughts I, I and my insight? I think your thoughts are always thoughtful, and I appreciate that. Um, but the, you, like you said, Democrats are all mad. Everybody's there, but this point, pointing the finger at you know Governor Abbott, at President Trump. Remember when Kathy Hochul, the governor of New York, went to the White House a couple of weeks ago? The president did not even meet I know, with her. I know. I mean, he sent other people. Green Jean Pierre says that he is busy. He's got a plate full, and so he did the best he could and sent some other people. How do you think the governor feels about that? And if you don't want Democrats out there trash talking you from within your own party, maybe you meet with them. Maybe you do some stuff that would actually relieve some of these burdens. Um, you know, Texas is saying to these other places, like, "Welcome to the party. This is what we deal with all day, every day." If you're worried about hospitals and schools and and resources and shelters being overrun, this is our reality, and it has been for years. But but you know what's interesting is they have the LA Times writes a story that the administration's considering 
a Remain in Texas program, mm-hmm. which would make it, I guess, illegal to once you pass through illegally and you get your papers to leave Texas. Now, wait a second. I'm looking at my Hagstrom and it turns out there's other border states. Wait a second. It is Arizona, which is a Democratic governor. It is New Mexico, a Democratic governor and a Democratic governor in California. No, but we want to remain in Texas. How do you your lawyer? Uh, Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of anything like this? I cannot imagine that would not immediately go to court. Like, you know, what these states argue, and there was a huge fight years ago, earlier when I was covering the Supreme Court, about them passing their own state laws to try to deal with some of what was happening at the border. And unfortunately for them, the Supreme Court, for the most part, said, listen, immigration is a federal issue, and you got to leave most of these big things on immigration to the feds. But these states are going to continually argue, and Texas and others have argued this in other litigation, if you guys aren't doing Doing the job, we have a right to protect our borders as a state. So I cannot for one second imagine that if they say, oh, yeah, we're going to let people illegally come in the country, but they can, they have to stay in Texas and can't go anywhere. Um, you know, knowing Governor Abbott, I believe they're already drafting the uh, lawsuit right now. Right. And of course, they have the Rio Grande buoys that a judge said take Just down. Just got kicked out. Yeah. And then for people to say, well, you know, uh, this is overwhelming. It's Republicans' fault. Really? Do you remember when Donald Trump tried to sue these sanctuary cities? And it turns out most of the judges says you got to leave them in place. First, we said we declared them, I, I guess, unconstitutional or illegal, and and they sued and they left there. Now you have your sanctuary cities, and now you got your illegal immigrants who want sanctuary. And now we understand the mayor of Chicago says they got a great idea. Instead of that genius idea that said put them in airports and police stations, we're going to set up ten cities just in time for the Chicago winter. So we'll have ten cities in a crime-ridden city of Chicago. And then we go to Massachusetts where they declared a state of emergency with the Democratic governor. And then here you got 80,000 and 21,000 students who now want school, school supplies, mm-hmm. bus. They're going to get buses, I guess. And they're going to get teachers and, uh, and federal money for uh, bilingual uh, teachers to let you know that eventually you got to speak English. I think that is our native tongue. So this is a disaster. And I just don't think any reasonable person would be claiming a Republican for this. Well, yeah, I mean, you got to look around. Think about this. Um, in Chicago, you have members of the community threatening lawsuits against their own Democratic leaders that they have elected. I mean, their new mayor, who was getting, he says he's going to be even more progressive by many estimates than Lori Lightfoot, who just left, they are suing, saying, you are helping all these people from outside of the country who are not here, didn't go through the right process, they're here illegally. When we have scores of homeless people and families who are desperate here, these American families, I guarantee you there will be a lawsuit involving parents in these schools in New York if they feel like their kids are being hampered or their ability to get an education. And by the way, the Supreme Court did say decades ago that it doesn't matter what a child's status is or how they got here, they do have a right to public school education. So these cities and school districts and counties are going to have to figure this out because if those kids want to go to school, you have to give them a spot. You know, but you're going to you're going to have lawsuits from the parents who have been in those schools for, you know, years and and are worried about what's going to happen to their kids. So when you see these numbers come out of a CNN poll and you hear CNN just talk about how scary it seems for the Democratic Party, I'm wondering what your thoughts and how it's going to shape Fox News Sunday. Here's James Carville speaking what he knows the numbers say. Cut three. I guess to say the least, the, 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 the polls are not uh, we're not great. And it tells us that, you know, voters have expressing uh, some apprehension here. It's, it's pretty clear. I mean, there's not much else you can say when you you look at them. 
you, you can't look at this and not say that you're concerned. It, it's just right. for me to come on television and say, I, I don't find this alarming or troubling at all would be, would be stupid. I, mean, I, mean, I wouldn't do that. So every, every Republican beats him. Uh, except for Vivek Ramaswamy, he only trails by one or two points mm-hmm. uh, and, or, or ties him. That's stunning. Yeah, I mean, the poll numbers were really bad for the president yesterday because all tucked in there is that, you know, people aren't confident in him. They worry about his age. They don't think he's performing well on specific duties. They want somebody else to run. These are people within his own party. And so these are really major issues. They're making the centerpiece of their campaign Bidenomics, and yet a majority of Americans in this poll and our polls and every poll out there say they actually think that the president's economic policies are making their situation worse. So if a majority of Americans think that and that's the centerpiece of your campaign, that explains why you're you know, head-to-head or losing to most of the GOP field. So are you ready for more insight? I am. I've been waiting. Okay. The Hunter Biden stuff is getting so serious, and the the progress that James Comer and company are, and now that David Weiss, however he wants to be, he is empowered if he chooses to use his power, that I believe that Joe Biden says, I got to stay in power in order to exonerate my son and maybe myself. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's not going to step aside, and maybe one of the reasons why Jill isn't pushing him. Well, remember a few weeks ago when um, I think it was Peter Ducey who asked Corrine Jean-Pierre about whether or not the president would pardon his son if he was convicted of something. She said no. And I think we're all. She I, said no. Oh, myself. I missed that. That's she said no. And I to me, I was surprised because it didn't sound like she left a lot of wiggle room. I think most of what happens from the press room, you know, you got to leave some wiggle room, things change, whatever. I was surprised that she said that. Now, maybe there is there was some nuance in there somewhere that I missed, but um, it seemed strange to me that she would close that door. Now, at the time, there wasn't a looming indictment. Remember, they were in the middle of this plea deal that they were going to work out. His legal team says it's still in force. You know, um, We'll see what the judge has to say, because now, you know, we're told DOJ is looking to get a formal indictment, pursue that before the 29th of this month. That's a very short time frame. But um, if you have a sitting president whose son is indicted on felony charges, potentially, um, you've got the former president who has got numerous trials and is going to be in those. Remember, when DOJ was negotiating with Hunter's attorneys over this potential plea deal, remember there was the, the threat of putting the sitting president on the stand that they would call him to testify. So we think things are crazy now. It's about to get even crazier and weirder. Right. Uh, I, the thing I care least about is his gun charge. Uh, I want the foreign business dealings and find out what, what went on there. So I got to ask you about this. I'm trying to keep up with it while doing the show, but I understand grand jury testimony has been released. Recommendations have been released and uh, in, in Georgia, Fulton mm-hmm. County, and they did recommend an indictment on Senator Lindsey Graham and Senator Perdue mm-hmm. and Boris Epstein. How mm-hmm. odd is it to get a recommendation and not indict somebody that's on your list? I think the list was huge. They did yeah, get it 19. Was a big list. Like over 30 people that they recommended indicting. But remember, this is that special grand jury that was being chaired by the very interesting four person who went out and gave interviews and talked about how excited she would be to swear in the president, the former president, and be able to ask him questions. It was just odd. But the special grand jury at the end of this report acknowledges what is always true. These are our recommendations, but we know that the um, you know district attorney is the one, the state's attorney, who is going to put together the final decision on who actually gets indicted. And that's what happened here. 
years. So special grand jury threw a very wide net with this saying. They heard from more than 75 witnesses. They also said they think that some of the witnesses perjured themselves um, when they came before them. So they had a big recommendation list, but ultimately it was up to Fonnie Willis to say, you know, what do I think I have the best case that I can potentially prove? And she narrowed that to 19, which still seems very expansive. Uh, I'll tell you, you're the expert, but I cannot believe how ill-thought trying 19 people at the same uh-huh. time was. Just they logistically. Say, I'm listening to the judge in real time, like think out loud and say, listen, I'm, I'm listening to this. It's going to take four months. And if you're going to split these people off and two are already split off mm-hmm. and try them separately, Cheeseboro and uh, Sidney Powell, oh. mm-hmm. and now we understand the president's going, yeah, I think I want to be in federal court with Mark Meadows. Not at the <laughs> right. same time. And so, is it, guys, how do you plan on doing this? And how many witnesses? Hundreds of witnesses. Right. So that's not going to happen. Did anybody no. think this through? Did well, anybody it, think this through? What are they thinking? I mean, they spent over two years on this in Georgia. They had to have thought through some of the logistics. Anytime you're going to have 19 co-defendants, you have to be realistic about how that's actually going to play out. And as you said, and you talk about multiple people peeling off in, in a lot of different directions – And the way that they want to handle this, there's no way this gets done in any reasonable amount of time. Um, You know, the volume of material in these cases, too. Of course, President Trump's team is going to fight to get every one of them pushed back as far as they can. But the Georgia case gave itself, um, you know, some some hurdles and, and challenges logistically before it even gets to the defense side. I mean, just the 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 uplift or the heavy lift of trying to prosecute that many people at once is nearly mm. impossible. You mentioned the chair, the foreman of the grand jury, mm-hmm. the most bizarre person I have listened to speak on national television ever. <laughs> Here's an example. I kind of wanted to subpoena the former president because I got to swear everybody in. Mm. And so I thought it'd be really cool to get 60 seconds with President Trump of me looking at him and being like, do you solemnly swear? And me getting to swear him in. I just, I kind of just thought that would be an awesome moment. Right. This person's going to decide the next election. (laughs) Yeah, that does does not help Fonnie Willis in her case that your special grand jury four person was out there giving interviews. That's, you know, that's a that's a tricky thing in in and of itself. But then to be saying things like that doesn't inspire confidence for a lot of folks. She's she's a goofball. And and to for her to make the cut and then go out there and speak and then have her represent the grand jury and to think well, she will decide the form the next president goes to jail or not. Are you crazy? What planet are we on? Well, it did make me think if she's the four person, I, I want to know about the rest of the jury. If they were ah, like this is our best ah, leader. This is our leader. Ah. I need to see everyone else too. I need to know what's going on there. Right. Uh, so lead with her, uh, Shannon. I'm the Fox News Sunday will have who Mezca. Who will I look forward to? You know what? We're doing a deep dive on education. So Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin is with us. We talk to homeschoolers, public schoolers, students, teachers, administration um, folks. We have everyone. We also have Becky Pringle, who is the president of the National Education Association. When unions are taking a lot of heat for not wanting to be in the classroom, is that a fair accusation? You know, who's to blame? What's working? What's not? We're looking at all of it on Sunday. It's going to be great. Um... And I just uh, think that you should also roll in my interview with Christy Nome, where basically she's – I think she's going to endorse – You mean the vice president, the next vice president? Yeah, United she's States basically going to endorse the uh, Donald Trump. What do you think Trump. it's happening? Yeah, I just think it's, it hits on so many levels. Uh, it just seems to be the right fit, and she was never I anti-Trump, like but she was waiting – And now Mm -hmm. I think this weekend she'll officially say, I'm endorsing the man. I think you're right. And we'll see them on stage together. People will get a look at whether they think that is the ticket they want to see on the GOP uh, ballot. 
All right. Uh, I've enjoyed our time, Shannon. And I know you mock my insights, but I think I made you smarter. What? I, I think love I... you. I always get smarter by listening to you. Allison, and, um, do you she think was you mocking, my show right? Wait a second. Wait a second. No, Allison uh, is with uh, me. Allison, she was mocking me, right? Nope. Shannon is nothing but sincere. That is so wrong. Oh, she was mocking Thank me. Thank you, Allison. The best. <laughs> I'm going to watch. Allison's going to watch on Sunday. I hope you will too. Absolutely. She, uh, Fox News Sunday's own Shannon Bream. We're going to watch on Sunday morning wherever you get, uh, you wherever you get your TV guide. Check but it for out. Saturday night with Brian Kilmeade. You got it. Go get it, Shannon. Bye. <laughs> You're with <laughs> Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. My nephew's coming by. This poor kid's 11 years old. I look at him. Where's he going? My sister's been rollerblading. I thought he was going to disarm a nuclear device. Poor kid looked like the Michelin man. Foam, rubber, plastic everywhere. She says, I don't want him to get hurt. I said, hurt? He could take a semi at 80 miles an hour in that house. Falling on concrete is supposed to hurt. See, that's your incentive to learn to stay upright on the rollerblades. Uh, that is Jeff Allen talking about today's kids, uh, talking about life, talking about his uh, relationship. It's a fountain of comedy for him. He's going to be with us shortly. He's going to be on One Nation 2 uh, as well, Saturday night at uh, 8 o'clock. Uh, so look forward to having Jeff on. Also is going to be looking forward to uh, following me on Saturday night, too. They they do have a comedy show two hours after that comes on at 10 o'clock because they want to have consistency after the Gutfeld shows are going on at 10 so one way or another, whether it's going to be Kennedy, Jimmy Fela, or whether it's going to be Tyrus himself, one of those three are really big. I forgot which one it is. Um, the one person's going to be hosting that. So trying to have some fun on the weekends, and that's what we've been doing. So we come back. Uh, Jeff Allen's going to be with us. We're also uh, covering three major stories, including the new news, that the grand jury in Georgia was not only indicted 19. They had recommendations to indict over 30 over 30 people in Fulton County. That's a joke. Brian Kelly. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I thought that was the whole point. Raise your kids and get them out as soon as possible. I was brainwashed to leave my home at 18. Every time I complained at all as a child, my parents said the exact same thing every time. These mashed potatoes are cold. When you're 18 and you have your own place, you can have all the hot mashed potatoes you want, Jeffrey. I just assumed 18, you left. They got me a suitcase for my 18th birthday. So where am I going to go? I don't have any place to live. I don't have a job. You'll figure it out. We love you, son. <laughs> Who knew you could live at home till you're 50 and become a U.S. senator? Uh, of course, you're, I know who yeah. you're talking about. Jeff yes. Allen here, stand-up comedian, author of a new book, Are We There Yet? My Journey from a Messed Up, uh, my journey from a messed up to a Meaningful Life. Hey, Jeff, welcome. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. Great I, to see I, you. I love the city, especially in the summer when uh, nobody's, all, nobody's bundled up. And, right. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm anti-winter. But yeah. it's it's New York a lot better than Chicago. Have you? Where do you? Where did you? Well, grow I grew up? up in Chicago. So freezing. Yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. I mean, much worse than New York. Correct. Absolutely. And uh, especially between the buildings when you get downtown and the and uh, I, I've got I got knocked down more than once uh, walking between the buildings in Chicago. Right now you just get yeah. knocked down by muggers. Right. That's it. I yeah. mean, how bad is it? In Chicago, have you been there lately? Oh, I have not. I uh, I'm going back next week. I'm working Schaumburg, the Improv, but that's out in the suburbs. Uh, right. And it's interesting. I have friends that still live there, and they they tell me how wonderful it is. And 
I guess. I don't right. know. You know. So I, I I met two people over the weekend in Florida, and they told me they reluctantly left because uh, one of them got mugged, and the other <laughs> one lived there for a while. They lived right by Wrigley Field, and they say it used to be the safest neighborhood. Well, I used and to, my first apartment was three blocks from Wrigley. Over safe, there. right? Yeah, it was. Oh yeah, gosh, yeah. Well, you know. so I guess things are changing now. It's amazing what happens when you don't enforce crime. I had no idea that crime would actually take root. I mean, honestly, who would ever guess that if you... Um... <laughs> I mean, it's the same thing that's happened in New York, too. What do you think about these activists last night uh, for a greener a greener world? They're getting upset they were using a bus in the engine. So in the last set, or the second set of the women's semifinal, they glued themselves to the ground and started screaming, standing and screaming. They're somebody's children. Where are the parents? <laughs> if my son does that... You kill him. Yeah, I'm, I, I, w- I wouldn't kill him, but I would certainly drag his ass yeah. home. <laughs> so, so tell me your your uh, with this book, your your approach to comedy, how it affected uh, your life, and how you're still funny even though you've gone through a lot. Well, the book was uh, from the period of when I was 30 years old to about 38 years old. So it covers. Uh, I got married as an alcoholic and a drug addict, and uh, I got into recovery about a year into that, uh, and that. That's where the title came from. Uh, is it, you know, you're on a recovery journey. You're like a child in the back seat of a car. You have no idea where you're going. You know, you just walk into those rooms just as beat up and broken as you can be, and they tell you to pray. I go to what? You know, I didn't believe in God, so uh, I did what I was told because I wanted to stay sober. I knew that uh, I couldn't drink and stay married, so um, I did what I was told and I prayed uh, to. And I never got my head around the. The higher power, I used to say, well, look, if I'm making up a deity, that kind of makes me delusional, doesn't. So it was really kind of an eight-year search to figure out if God exists and if he does, what does it look like? And would you come up with? Uh, Jesus at the end. That was the last rock, I guess. I tried self-help. I tried New Age. I tried Buddhism. I tried. I was reading Ayn Rand when I met the guy that put the Bible in my hands. And uh, it was probably a year into our friendship that uh, he had sent me some tapes from a church in Texas, and I never mm-hmm. opened them up. and. And eventually, uh, my wife took the kids. She was going to Ohio, and I thought she was gone for good. And uh, I opened up a tape. It was Ecclesiastes, and I don't know if you're familiar with the book, but it starts out meaningless, meaningless. All in life is meaningless. And that was that was my conclusions after eight years. That I was a full-blown nihilist. I, I, My wife would shake me. We're losing the house. We're losing everything, and you don't care. I go, I don't. I want to. I mean, believe me, I feel the weight of it. I just don't care. I mean, why does it matter if we have a big house, small house? You know, obviously you need shelter, but it didn't matter to me. And uh, when I heard meaningless and that, that was, I figured if that was true, which I believed it to be, then there must be other things in that book that is true. And I just dove into the Bible and um, I got to, in the beginning, God, it took me I don't know, about a month to get into Genesis, but that's when I hit me that there was a God. And uh, scared me to death because I blasphemed and cursed him and mocked him my whole life. And, how did it, and, how'd that relate to the fact that you were drinking? Well, I stopped drinking. Uh, all of this, everything in the book was done sober. I, I, I didn't, I, I didn't, it, when you no, say you're I, an alcoholic, I, it, you know, it, it's either, it's like when someone says I'm a sex addict and, and you go, well, I want to hear the details. Well, then you're a voyeur, you know, I, I, I'm an alcoholic. I don't need to go into. No, no, I mean, um, I should rephrase it. So. Do you think you drank because you didn't believe in a higher power, or did that just help you through recovery? No, I I, I drank since I was thirteen or fourteen. My, that's what I saw the men doing around me. I mean, right. my, my father, you know, my brother. We were all um, 
heavy drinkers. And and from the minute I drank, I, I, I drank obsessively. I was black. I had blackouts at 14, 15 years old. Um, so I was pretty much inebriated from the time I was 15 till the time I quit when I was 30 in some form of it or another. And, um, so again, you crawl into those rooms. You're just, I just, again, I have no clue. I mean, and they say, if it's true, what psychologists say that you, you remain emotionally, uh, an alcoholic remains emotionally where they're at when they start drinking. I was a 14 year old with a wife and two kids. And, and, and in hindsight, looking back to the way I behaved at that point in my life, I was a pretty, I was pretty adolescent in my behavior. So how did comedy come into play? Uh, I, I was a uh, comic since I was 22 years old, um, you know, and I was eight years. I was headlining comedy clubs when I met my wife. She was a waitress. So uh, I fell in love with her laugh. She was a smoker. Smokers have the best laughs. I mean, when you cannot get oxygen into your lungs, that's music. To right. comics. <laughs> so she's gagging and wheezing in the back of the room. And uh, I just said, oh, it's a woman. She digs me. I think I'm going to seek her out and. Uh, anyway, I met her in November. Uh, she had a two-year-old. We spent a week together, flew her and her son out to L.A. where I was living at the time, spent a week playing dad. And on April, flying on a red eye, I decided I'll ask her to marry me. He had no ring, no plan. You know, it was an impulse. Uh, right. By the way, if there's a young man listening here, don't recommend this. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, right. you, you might want to buy a pair of shoes at impulse, but right. uh, not Right. Not a wife, but it worked out. But I did. I asked her to marry me at Cleveland Airport baggage claim, which is how I opened the book because I wanted the reader to fall in love with my romantic side. Right. You know, which you have, which, obviously. Which they have. Yes, I do have one of those. And that was it. We grabbed the luggage and left, and she picked up some baggage that day in, the, in me. So. so were you worried that when you got sober you wouldn't be as funny? Initially, you know, I think that's an excuse you use to keep – because you know, I, had try, I had tried quitting on and off, but um, – yeah, initially, and it's interesting. I, as a, I was more worried as a Christian, would I not be? Right. Because I, I got so soft in my attitude and everything. But when I realized at some point it made me a better, I'm a storyteller, uh, and when you tell stories, it you really helps to get a thesaurus out and use the, use the language. Right. So, and then when I stepped into churches, my friends would go, "How's that working out?" And I go, "Believe it or not, they're used to listening to someone for forty five minutes without throwing a beer bottle at them." Right. You know. Were you on stage drinking? Oh, always, yeah. I mean, I, I used to put notes under the beer bottle on a napkin, so I would walk back, take a sip, and read my because I couldn't remember my. So that must have been that must be a legitimate fear. Like, am I funny when I'm I, at noon when I'm not drinking? You were you naturally funny with the with the hanging out with the guys? Uh, yeah, yeah I was obnoxious. Was the word I heard a lot. You know, I was fairly obnoxious, but. Um, uh, yeah, it was interesting when my kid, we got, I got uh, called into school because my kid cussed at his teacher in fourth grade. So um, I, I look at the teacher and go, I'd love you to look, I'd love to be able to look you in the eye and tell you I have no idea where that child hurt, <laughs> that kind of language. So we were driving home and my wife says, this is really a reflection on us. We need to curb our language. So anyway, I, um, I paid the kids a quarter for every foul word that came out of my mouth, which is basically how I funded their college. <laughs> you know? And are you? How about now? Do you curse? Uh, only on the golf course. Uh, I, I tend to forget I have a piece that surpasses right. all understanding on a golf course. You do do a, a piece on woke golf. Oh, I do. I, I, I t- my wife got mad at me because during COVID, I was home five months and I'm playing golf five days of the week, and she says you're going to bring the COVID home. You know, like it's a person. I said I'm outside. 
and I'm golfing. You know, she goes, what precautions are you taking? I said, for golf? I don't know. We quit kissing after birdies. Does that work for you? <laughs> and then she goes, I, I said, we play woke golf anyway. She goes, what's woke golf? I said, well, you hit your tee shot, then you pick the ball up and place it where you feel it should be. <laughs> you know? And like everything in the woke world, there's no root in reality. So I've had 41 hole-in-one since I started. So, so I'm just curious on the construction of this. Do you sometimes nail it like that? That's hysterical. And you nail a conversation. You go, I'm using that. Yeah. Like, so do you, is that how it happened? Did it? Come That's up how the woke golf came. I was. I said to guys, we need to play woke golf because I was hitting everything in the in the woods, right. you know. And um, I and just. And then you go, I'm writing this down. Yeah, I did. Yeah, that that's one of those you just go, oh, I wonder if anybody else has thought of that, you know, because it's like an obvious, right? Hit, you know. It was like well, the, the latest with Mitch McConnell. Um, this one came, uh, uh, my wife was playing the video in the kitchen. I'm making a sandwich and we live in the country. So our Wi-Fi sucks. Right. So anyway, he stops talking and I about 10 seconds ago, is it buffering? She goes, no, he's just staring. So I walk over and I look, I go, my God, retire for gosh sakes. And then it hits me. He's falling down. Biden's falling down. And I looked at Tammy and said, this is what happens when you get your spine made in China. <laughs> so, I go, I go, so I call myself a hit and run. I'm a casual observer of the culture. So right. that's my hit and run. As long as the news oh. can help you, you're well, always going to be watching. Yeah, the problem with, with all of that I learned early on in my comedy walk was uh, they, they have short shelf lives. You have to be really in the paper every day and kind of picking up on things. My favorite line about all of that, and this is why I don't do much, is when remember when Chipotle was almost killing people because there was some kind of yeah yeah yeah. So, so anyway, I, I, I'd walk on stage and go. My wife and I had dinner at the casino last night. Well, you know it is Chipotle. Is there a bigger gamble than that, folks? And it worked for about four days. You know, it was like it would kill, and all of a sudden it just dissipated, and it was like a smattering. Yeah, I was watching a friend of mine do a lot of stuff on the balloon. When the balloon came across, we oh. followed this balloon, and he killed. And he goes, oh, I go, that was so funny. He goes, yeah, but it's done. It's done. Yeah, he goes, yeah. I buried it. And yeah. when I walked off stage, it died. Well, I was headlining, was headlining comedy clubs uh, when Lorena Bobbitt happened. Oh, wow. So I'd follow the MC. He'd do eight minutes on Lorena Bobbitt. And next guy would do eight minutes. So what, what am I going to do? You're dead. I'm yeah. dead, you know. Uh, that's the bad thing about being a headliner, right? right. Sometimes, and, but I w- did. Say, but I did say you found the pecking order in that police department. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, nice. Yeah. Here's right. a bucket of ice and some tongs. Jeff Allen's with us. Uh, pick up his book. Are we there yet? My journey from messed up to a meaningful life. Jeff Allen, don't move. Thanks. Learning something new every day on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Tammy says to me about a year ago, she goes, I want you to look into the waxing thing. That's what she said, sir. I want you to look into the waxing thing. I honored my wife. I looked into the waxing thing. Came back and told her, get used to the pelt. It's not going anywhere. Are you kidding me? Have we lost our minds as a culture? We spend billions of dollars to have somebody rip the hair out of our body by the root. That hurts. But we won't let our federal government drip water on the faces of terrorists. I think the CIA needs to open up some spas around the world. That's all I'm saying. You know, Ahmed, before we send you back to the battlefield as part of the new Western Civilization Catch and Release Program, you're in luck. The U.S. government's going to clean you up today, my man. Those 72 maidens you're dying to lay with in the next life, they don't want to lay next to a throw rug.
There you go. Uh, that is Jeff Allen taking the news and put, bringing it onto the stage. Jeff Allen is going to be with us uh, tomorrow night uh, on One Nation, and he's with us in studio now. If you're smart enough to get, uh, you're smart enough to get uh, Fox Nation. We're streaming now. So, Jeff, people seem to enjoy when you pull stuff out of the news. Do you ever do you ever pull stuff out and people aren't following it, or is, is do you have a uh, a method to that? No, I'm. I, I, I again, I call myself a casual observer of the culture. So as a casual observer, I'm getting the big stories. So most people, you know, I made a crack uh, one night. Uh, I did the Chinese spy thing, uh, spying thing with with Biden falling down, and some woman in South Carolina took offense to it and sent me a page and a half email. Oh, I should I should stop picking on our president. He's just trying to save the free world. <laughs> So it made me laugh. Right. So I was thinking, you know, if your concern is the free world, you might not want to leave $86 billion of military hardware in the hands of a 12th century worldview. You yeah. know, yeah. And, you know, just it's parenting 101. Before you leave the house, pick your toys up, take right. them back. Yeah. And, and right now uh, right. we have the Taliban go, going against Iran and ISIS K. Right. So I said to her, I wrote her back a short reply. I said, look, I don't normally reply to emails. I get too many of them, but yours intrigued me. I said, I have a question for you. You don't even have to reply to me. Just answer it honestly to yourself. If you owned a Starbucks, would you let Joe Biden run your register? And you know you wouldn't, so shut up. <laughs> I said, but you would let him greet at the door. He's an affable guy. He's a great storyteller. And he would just shake your customers' hands and regale them with stories. And uh, years ago, he, Joe Biden, was raised in the Colombian forest by Juan Valdez himself. Mm. And he personally handpicked those beans they're roasting right now. <laughs> and you would be so impressed. You'd say, I just had a cup of Joe with Joe. How do I tip you? Oh, Venmo me at 10% for the big guy. <laughs> and if you really want to help me out, you can run it through my son Hunter's account. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, that's it. So anyway, uh, she, uh, you know, the, I get replies and people, you know, I, people will come by. And my audience is relatively older. They remember when we used to actually get along with people we disagreed with. Um, so they'll come by and they'll, they'll lean over and go, I'd let him run my register. And I'd go, and you'd go broke, you know, <laughs> but, but they'll, they'll, they'll buy a book or whatever. And, uh, you know, they, 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 they understand, you know, I, 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 I've said it a thousand times, man. I used to, we used to have an election day, Tuesday and Wednesday, you're golfing with a guy and you go, who'd you vote for? So-and-so I voted for the other guy. And that was it. That was the end of it. Yeah, no one cared. No, and honestly, it was like they understood. They put it in perspective. These guys really don't care about it. But now you. it's it's so much more of a sport. People yeah. really well, are taking it as if it's huge money. Right. Huge money in the clickbait. And the, I, I used to say we had the age of industry, we had the age of technology. Now we're living in the age of hyperbole. If you can create the biggest headline and get the clicks, then you're mm -hmm. making some money off it. So yeah. Uh, Jay Leno used to go back and forth. He used to say, here's Republicans or, you know, right. make fun of that and Democrats. But when he left, there is nobody outside Gutfeld who does a different type show. There's no one who does stand up. will make fun of Joe Biden. There's no SNL is no longer mock. They used to mock Barack Obama. Right. Well, look at, uh, I mean, Chevy that, Chase, they would never do that. Chevy Chase made a career out of falling down. Uh, Gerald Ford fell down. One. He was an athlete. He was, he was, a, he was a center of the Michigan football team. I know, exactly. And a boxer. Exactly. And if. if Chase makes his career out of because he falls once. You right. Know. But and then, you know, evidently Johnny Carson was great friends with the Reagans. He right. used to mock Ronald Reagan. They Reagan used to laugh at that. Yeah. Carson had a theory that if you couldn't if you, you couldn't make fun of him on Tuesday or Wednesday, whatever, and play golf with him the next day, then don't do the joke. So I mean, do you think do you think now that they've been off for four months and nobody cares and the ratings are so low and channel uh, with Colbert and uh, Fallon 
and Kimmel. Do you think they're going to wise up and start, you know, going back and forth and no. mocking Joe? No, and they won't wrong? get invited to the parties. Alan Dershowitz is the perfect example of what happens to a left winger if he steps off the narrative. He's now invisible. He's a, yeah. He he can't, he lives on the island out there, and he can't get invited to a party. They don't want him. Don't Isn't want it him. good, Jeff, never to be invited to parties because we don't know we're missing, and now we don't care. <laughs> yeah, I don't care. <laughs> you yeah. you're, gonna, you're not coming anyway. Yeah, I'm not. But believe me, we live out in the country. I can read a book on my deck with in my underwear, which right. is a visual I don't want anybody to take. And I hope they you. don't post it. Right. <laughs> right exactly. <laughs> All right, Jeff. I'll see you Saturday night at eight o'clock. Does that Absolutely. sound good? That sounds great. Brian. Jeff Thanks. Allen, uh, pick up his book. Uh, are uh, are we there yet? My journey from messed up to a meaningful life. You can follow him at Jeff Allen Comedy. Jeff, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. Don't move. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.